19. Last week, we ended up in verse 30, where Jesus said it was finished. And then, of course, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And so we're beginning here in verse 31 of John chapter 19. And we'll continue to the end of the chapter here this evening. And what we see here is the the death and burial of Jesus Christ. He said it was finished. He gave up his spirit. And in verse 31, it makes this declaration, therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. As we look to this, it simply makes a declaration it was a preparation day. As we recognize that the one was going to be the, it was a high day. In other words, it was a festival day. A couple of things that you should be aware when it comes to this understanding of the preparation day. There's sometimes, not in all people, but in some people, there's kind of a confusion of just Jesus Christ when he actually died. Some say he died on Passover. Some say he died before the Passover. Um, And it's all because of this term, the preparation day. For you note takers, jot this down. First and foremost, just to kind of give you a foundation of what we're going to be building on. In Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 4, 5, and 6, it makes this declaration Leviticus 23 talks about the the feasts, the festivals, those types of things, the the weekly Sabbaths. But it says, these are the feasts of the Lord. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. And in verse 5, it makes this statement. On the 14th day of the first month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. So we understand that on the 14th day of the first month, there at twilight is going to be the Passover. And then it says in verse 6, and on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So understand what's happening. You have the 14th day, which is Passover. There at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Then the very next day, is the beginning of this week celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, something to make note of in Exodus 12, verse 6. When God told the nation of Israel to take the lamb there on the 14th day of the month, he makes a statement in Exodus 12, verse 6, and says, Now, You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel will kill it at twilight. So you're going to keep this lamb when you're going to expect the lamb. And of course, it's going to be there in your own house. And so, but when that happens, the evening, twilight on the 14th is where you kill it. And then you, whoever's in your house partakes of it. Well, they partake of it. You kill it right there. You're the one that kills it. 
the Levitical priesthood is not yet ordained at this point. So every family, the, the, the father of that house is the one who kills this lamb. And it's there at twilight in the evening, beginning the 14th day. And so what is going on here? Well, when it talks about the preparation day, there's a couple things that you should be aware of, that every single gospel makes this declaration that it is the preparation day. And as it's the, the preparation day, keep in mind that what we're trying to recognize, what begins to happen is the, there's a, a directive to try to determine that in this preparation day, most people, not most, but there's a, a group of people, which is why there's a division, say this preparation day is the preparation for the Passover. And if that's the case, if that's the preparation day, it's the preparation for the Passover because they say it's a high Sabbath, then it would be that Jesus would have been crucified not on the Passover, but the day before the Passover. And of course, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So when it comes to this whole understanding of, of when the, the, the Lord is, when he was crucified, what is the situation, what began to happen, I want you to understand, and I'm going to share with you just a couple of verses so that you can kind of see what's going on. In Luke chapter 22. Like I said, I'm just trying to establish a foundation here. It says in verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Then he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? So understand, he says, I want you to go and prepare the Passover on this day so that we can eat. But he says, go and prepare the Passover. And then in verse 14 of Luke 22, it says, when the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 and he said to them with fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So as we understand, there's this Basic understanding that before the Passover, and so it was the preparation day that of that Jesus was saying, this is where I want you to prepare this Passover, and of course it's there on this preparation day. In Mark's gospel, same type of situation, verse four or chapter 14, verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare? So we begin to see that it is the day before the Passover. Now what happens is this, that there is a lot of times a mixture of the, the, the Passover being the unleavened bread. Understand that according to you know, Leviticus, you have the Passover on the 14th, the unleavened bread on the 15th. So both of those are considered high Sabbath. In other words, high holidays, a time of rest. Within this, now that we understand that Jesus is telling the disciples, I want you to prepare the Passover on this preparation day, what begins to happen? 
Well, I want to give you just the gospel so that you can kind of see what's happening here. That now we understand that there was a preparation day for the Passover, but there's also a preparation day for what? For the Sabbath and for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There are two preparation days, one after another. Now, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, let me simply read it to you. It makes this declaration. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation. So you have the, the day of preparation. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together. So now we see that Matthew says the day after that day of preparation, now these chief priests are getting together. Now, on that day, keep in mind, now they're going and they're going to um, Pilate and says, listen, keep in mind, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. So now we see that they are talking about this day after the preparation. In Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 42, he makes this declaration. When evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So we see when evening come, because it was the preparation day. Now on this, when evening has come, now Joseph asked for the body. So keep in mind that what we're seeing is this. Over and over in the scriptures, it points out that Jesus told the disciples on the preparation day to the Passover, I want you to prepare. But now there's another preparation day. Why? Because the day of the Passover, you're now preparing for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And with this understanding of this preparation day, in Luke 23, verse 54, same situation begins to happen. It says, that day was the preparation day and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. So now they now follow um, Joseph of Arimathea as he puts the body of Christ to rest. So we're seeing here that there's a thing called the preparation day. The problem is, is most people say there's only one preparation day, and that's where they're in error. There's a preparation day that you prepare before the Sabbath, and then on the Sabbath becomes another preparation day that you are preparing for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, why is that important? Well, we'll keep in mind that when we look to this, the people who are only looking at the preparation day, saying there's only one preparation day, they're in error. You have to prepare to, for a Sabbath. And what happens is that the, the Thursday was a preparation day for the Passover. Friday is the Passover when Jesus eats the Passover. It's that day when he is arrested. He's tried He's crucified and he's killed. Then Saturday is the Sabbath. Of course, Sunday is the first day of the week to where Jesus rises from the grave. So within this, 
I want you to recognize that there is a multiple understanding of what this Passover is. The reason it's important to recognize that there's more than one preparation day is because there are going to be people who tell you that Jesus was not crucified at the Passover. So the reason they do this is, one, they only say there's one preparation day. I know it's a lot of detail to try to make one little point, but recognize they use a passage found in the Gospel of John to say that Jesus was not crucified on the Passover. And the passage they use is this. Remember when we were in chapter 18, in verse 28, it makes this declaration then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early in the morning, but they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. All right. Now, did Jesus eat the Passover? And now that Jesus is arrested... And they're now bringing Jesus early in the morning to Pilate. And they didn't go in lest they would be defiled so that they might eat the Passover, which is the Passover. Did Jesus lie? Is Caiaphas confused? Or is the Bible true? Well, let me tell you my answer. The Bible is true. There are some scholars who make this declaration that the eating the Passover in John 18, 28 could also be, they consider the Feast of Unleavened Bread with the Passover, they consider the, the Passover with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and because the Jews interchange that so much, it could be both. There's a possibility that could happen. But understand that what we understand of the scriptures is this. That there on the Passover, that the lamb was supposed to be killed at twilight. Well, now what happens is this. The individual families don't kill the lamb, but we know at the time of Jesus, what? The priests were the ones who inspected, sacrificed the lamb, gave the lamb back to the people. And at this point, Josephus makes this declaration that there are over 256,000 lambs that need to be sacrificed. So if you're looking at that amount of lambs that need to be sacrificed, keep in mind that there were at this point some people who ate the Passover right away at night and other people were waiting and waiting and they didn't eat the Passover until later on during the day. And I could see both of those possibilities. I could see one that they say the Passover the same as the unleavened bread, but I could also see that these priests had not eaten the Passover yet, but it was still the Passover day. So understand that at twilight, the lamb was to be killed. That doesn't happen anymore. You can't kill 256,000 lambs in the evening. It's a whole preparation day. They are slaughtering lambs from the preparation day until the evening so that everyone can then take their lambs, prepare that, and they can then prepare their food. The Passover 
and there are rabbis who agree with it. Some of them ate it towards the evening. Some of them would eat it the next day, but it was still considered what? The Passover day. And so I don't have an issue with these priests saying, hey, we don't want to go in and be defiled because it's still the day that we can eat the Passover. So within this, the reason that I'm spending this time is because there are going to be, maybe, you're going to hear or read or try to have someone tell you that Jesus Christ was not crucified on the Passover, that he wasn't the Passover lamb. I would completely disagree with that. When he told the disciples on the preparation day, I want you to prepare it so we can eat the Passover. That evening, and so keep in mind, the Jewish day starts at what? 6 p.m. And it goes all the way through the night until the next 6 p.m. That's the day of the Jewish. See, our day starts at what? Midnight till midnight. That's what we consider a day. To the Jew, it's as soon as the sun went down. So when Jesus partook of the Passover meal with his disciples, it was the evening, the twilight of the Passover, when the lambs were to be killed. Now, although earlier the lambs were to be killed at the twilight, keep in mind that what? Well, we see here that the, 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 the lambs, were done the, the day prior. The Passover lamb was partaken of. Now at the Passover, Jesus now dies on Passover. He ate the Passover in the evening with his disciples. He went to the garden. He was arrested. He was tried and he was crucified. So with all that, I want you to see that what we're looking at here in verse 31, because it was the preparation day. Now we're looking at what? It's the preparation day to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So through that, we recognize that it's, it's the, 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 the Passover proper. It's also the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. So he says, we do not want the bodies to remain on the cross. And, and here it is, it's the Passover. We don't want it to continue over to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Jews now ask Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So at this point, the Jews are going to Pilate and said, listen, we have certain religious requirements and we would like for you to oblige us so that we could be faithful in our religious requirements. Well, keep in mind that it wasn't that long prior to that that what? They were saying that we have a non-religious desire to kill Jesus of Nazareth, and we want you to come along and to allow us and help us with this non-religious desire to kill Jesus of Nazareth. They had no problem trying to conscript Pilate into doing that, so by hook or by crook, they were saying, listen, if you don't, if you let him go, we're going to tell Caesar that you're letting a man who wanted to be king loose and so you are no friend of Caesar we can't wait to rat you out so they by hook and crook created in Pilate a fear so that he would condemn Jesus Christ to death and now they're coming so amazingly 
the Jews asked Pilate in verse 31 that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So please, hasten their desk. Because what was happening was this. Crucifixion. Everything that crucifixion did as they put the nails there in the hands. And where they would consider the hands would be right there at the bottom part of the wrist. If you ever heard of someone who has carpal tunnel. Well, all the nerve endings go through this one little tube in your hand. And, and they would pierce that. And so the, the hand would be held. And after they would pierce the hands, they would pierce the feet. Now keep in mind that no vital organs are hit. Crucifixion was meant to be a slow, agonizing process of death. It wasn't meant to be quick. It wasn't a beheading. It wasn't an electrocution. It wasn't, you know, lethal injection. It was a slow, painful process. And people could live for days. Live for days because no vital organs were, were being, you know, brutalized other than slowly but surely they were suffocating. But their body, they would raise themselves up to take a breath and, and they would do so excruciating pain. Well, because they didn't want the process to go into another high Sabbath, they're asking Pilate, could you just break their legs, make sure they die quicker so that we can get them off the cross so we can bury them so they're not hanging around. And so we see here that as they are wanting to fulfill their religious requirements in little things, have no problem forsaking it in larger things, what we recognize is this. Verse 32, the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. At this point, they don't go to Jesus first. Kind of understood that they already recognized that he was dead, but they, they're, they're, what they do is they go to the two who are definitely alive. And I want you to focus on verse 32 for just a second because it's an important understanding of a biblical truth that sometimes Christians, we don't look to or other people as Christians say this couldn't exist. But in verse 32, it makes a bold statement. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. I want to share you a passage in the Gospel of Luke. Just write it down, jot it down. But in Luke 23, beginning in verse 39... And I want to read from 39 to 43 because it declares this. And one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Verse 40 of Luke 23. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And when he said to Jesus, then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, surely I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Do you understand this man has received the grace of God? This man has received forgiveness of sins. This man has received salvation. And although he's under the grace of God, 
and he has his sins forgiven, and he's going to meet with our Lord there in paradise, what these soldiers do is they break the leg. Now, understand how they break the leg. What they will do is this. They will either use a metal rod or a mallet, and they will swing at the leg. They will swing right there at that part between the knee and the foot, and they will smash, they will literally smash that bone in. Not just break a leg, they will smash the bone. And I want you to recognize this is what it means that they broke. They, they, they broke it. And, and I think it's amazing that here that the soldiers, although this man is under God's grace and is saved, were still able to cause this man pain. Make no mistake that you can be saved, you can be under God's grace, you can have your sins forgiven, and you can still, like he said there on the cross in Luke 23, it's still the consequences of our sins. You can still have that. So understand that, that what these men could do is they could cause this man more pain, they could cause this man to die, but they could not cause this man to not be with Jesus Christ in paradise. That's where their power ended. And I think it's important to note that there's a lot of times that there will be well-meaning Christians who say, listen, once you're in God's grace, you can't suffer. Once you're in God's grace, there can't be any pain in your life. Once you're in God's grace, everything is going to be what? Flowers and tulips. They're going to be just in the field, and there's going to be nothing wrong ever. And keep in mind that that isn't how Scripture proclaims life to happen. There's a portion, and I think you're aware of it, found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And there what happens is this. After David had had an affair with Bathsheba, murdered Uriah the Hittite and his other Israelis through his general, eventually Nathan would come to him, the prophet. And Nathan would do something interesting. He would tell David uh, a story. He would give him a word picture. And what the word picture would be this. He'd talk about a rich man who had a lot of sheep, a poor man who only had one. The rich man had a, a, a friend over, and rather than taking from his many he took the one ewe lamb of the poor man, slaughtered it. David was incensed of a man who had so much that would take from a man who had next to nothing. And as David literally, not aware yet that this was his sin, but just knowing that as he saw his sin in this picture that Nathan declared, David was incensed. And, and he makes a statement where if you do steal something, you repay it fourfold. That's what you do. But David is, is beyond that because there in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. David pronounced judgment upon himself. That's what he's done. 
The man who did this should die. In verse 13, David is going to go to Nathan. He's going to make the statement, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. God's grace. God's grace that David would not die. However, keep in mind two passages, two verses to look at is verse 10 and verse 14 here in 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12, 10 makes this. Nathan makes this, this declaration. He said, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. You thought you could deceive, but I'm telling you, David, that the consequences of what you have done today shall not depart your house, that you will have these consequences for the rest of your life. And guess what? David had those consequences for the rest of his life. His sons were messed up. His son tried to kill him. You know, his general then killed his son. His house was a mess. Why? Because of David's sin. And because God said the consequences of this sin is going to follow you for your entire life, the sword will never depart from your house. And amazingly, you know what David did? He accepted the consequences. And in the midst of those consequences, you know what? I'm going to accept those consequences because they're, they're mine to accept, but I'm going to constantly give my life as a worship over to God. And from this point on, he did. Well, that wasn't it. That wasn't the end of the consequences because in 2 Samuel 12, 14, he says, however, by this deed, you have given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child who is born to you shall surely die. David didn't die, but the child, the child between him and Bathsheba the first did die. And so we recognize here that when it comes to this thief, it's an important truth. Don't just read like, like we're looking at here in John 19, where it says in verse 32, the, sager, the soldiers came, they broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with them, and then just move on. Do you understand that the, the, the one was saved? The one was a recipient of God's grace. The one was going to be in paradise with Jesus, and we will see him in heaven. Absolutely incredible. But although he's a recipient of all these things, he still has consequences for his sins suffering on this side of paradise. And keep in mind that there are going to be times where when we as Christians, certain sins we will sin and it won't seem like there's going to be any consequences. And if there aren't, that's God's grace. But other sins that we are going to sin, there are going to be consequences even as a Christian. And you are going to suffer even as a Christian. And it's important to recognize this truth because there's some people, and I'm telling you, they're out there saying that when you are Christ, you will never have another bad day in your life. It's just not true. It's not how Scripture portrays it because if this is the case, the man would have been what? He would have died instantly and been in paradise waiting for Jesus. That would have been it, but he's still having to suffer. His legs, his bones are shattered he experiences that pain. He experiences the death. Now, Jesus Christ is what? Well, we know that where, where he is back in verse 30, he said it was finished and he gave up his spirit. 
Jesus is no longer in pain, but this man, he is. And so the soldiers, verse 32, came and they broke the leg of the first and of the other who was crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and did not break his legs. Now, this is incredible because at this point, they break the legs of the two, but they do not break the leg of Jesus. And why is that important? Because there is a prophecy. And in in more than one way, it makes this declaration. Psalm 34. And it's a psalm of David. But he makes the statement in verse 20. He said, he, that is God, guards all his bones and not one of them is broken. There's a prophecy that here that Jesus would not have a broken bone. And so amazingly, that as they break the legs of the two, and at this point, the enemy wanted what? This prophecy to not be there. And so the, the, the Jews go, hey, hasten their death. The only way they do that, the way they always do it, break a leg. And as they go and try to break the legs, they break the legs of the first, they break the legs of the second, but they cannot break the legs of Jesus. Why? Because God has already ordained that he would not. And then we recognize on top of that that what we see is that you, he was already dead. Now, a passage to be aware of found in, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. Jot it down. But it does make this statement. Talking about the Passover lamb, it says, In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. The Passover lamb could not have its limbs broken. He could not have a broken bone. And so we see here that there's a prophetic word that you could not have a broken bone. It talks about it there in in Exodus. It also makes the same declaration there in the book of Numbers. If you want to jot it down, Numbers chapter 9, verse 12 says the same thing. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break one of its bones. According to all the ordinance of the Passover, they shall keep it. God makes a declaration and says, listen, you cannot, you cannot break the bones. And so we see that there is a powerful thing because Jesus is already, already dead. Jesus had made a declaration. It was just a powerful declaration there in the earlier in the gospel of John, John chapter 10, verse 17. As, as he goes through, he makes this declaration He said, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up. This command I have received from my father. So this is what Jesus does. He has the power to lay down his life. He has the power to take up his life. God has already declared that truth to him. And so in Luke chapter 23, there in verses 46 through 47, we see the same truth begin to happen because it declares this. When Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. And so when the centurion saw it, what had happened, he glorified God. And he said, certainly this was a righteous man. 
See, no one killed Jesus. He did the work. They crucified him. But understand, Jesus said what? I'm laying down my life. I'm giving my life. And so he gave up his spirit. He had the power to lay down his life. He has the power to take it back up. And so I want you to recognize that when they came to Jesus, he was already dead, verse 34, so they did not break his legs. Now, they could have broken it out of spite. They could have broken it just to be sure, but they did not. Do you understand how all these things are happening, but they're prevented because of God's word that they can't go beyond it? But now in verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Now with this, it's so incredible that as he pierces his side, I want you to recognize that there is this prophetic word. And, and so they will look upon him whom they have pierced. It makes this declaration in Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and my supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. He's the only one who was pierced with a spear. And as they pierced him there in the side, and this is important, they didn't break his legs, but in John 19, verse 34, it says, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. I want to tell you a passage that you're already aware of, found in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, God does something amazing. In verse 21, he causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he sleeps he takes one of his ribs, he closes it up in its, the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord had taken, he made into a woman, he brought her to the man. And when Adam wakes up, he goes, wow, this is my bride. But keep in mind that what happens is this in Genesis 21, the first thing that happens, what, there's a deep sleep that comes upon Adam. Make a note of that. There's a deep sleep. Adam is not alert. He's not awake. Jesus is now dead. Let's just call it a deep sleep. It's a really deep sleep. And as he's there, the same way with Adam, where God opens up his side, there's a piercing in the side and there's the rib that's taken out. Some scholars actually say it's blood that was taken out. And because that word for rib is the same word for blood, and it's, they say, well, because you know, it's through the marrows where all the, the blood is made. And, and, but it was, it was that mixture. And I think it's important to recognize that as Jesus here is dead, his side is pierced. You open up the side. What comes out is this. A life source that does what? That now allows for a bride. And when Adam wakes up, he says, oh my goodness, this is my bride. Jesus Christ, he's there. He's dead. 
But there, his side is opened up. A life source is, is now removed from it as blood and water now comes out. That life source is the same as is where when the water breaks, the birthing fluid, the blood and the water that's mixed, you have this life force coming out. He's there in the grave. And guess what? When he is awakened, when he rises from the grave, guess what comes with him? The birth of the church, his bride. And I love this understanding because we see it's just simply a soldier pierces his side. And, and some say, yeah, it's just simply this, this understanding of the prophecy of Zechariah. It's more than that. It takes it all the way back to Genesis 2 where there was the first Adam. And when he was asleep, God opened up his side, brought a life source and brought a bride. The last Adam does the same thing. And as the first Adam awakens to a bride, so will the last Adam awaken to the bride. Now, after he pierces his side, verse 35, he was seen and testified. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. And so we see that those, those, those prophetic word in Exodus 12 and Numbers 9 and Psalm 34, none of his, his bones will be broken akin to Zechariah 12.10, and they're going to look on him whom he, they pierced. All these things, John says, is true, had to happen because scripture said it was going to happen. And I love the fact that there's a prophetic word that is spoken. And understand that as that prophetic word, what Peter says in his epistle in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, says, so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed is a light that shines in a dark place until the day the dawn dies, the dawn, until the day the dawn and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, that no prophecy of scripture is a private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Spirit. It was so neat that on Sunday we were talking and there was a discussion that was going on how God would speak to so many different people. And all these prophets had no idea the big picture. All they knew were little tiny details David was saying that God is your king. Then the judges would come and they would say, Gideon, they said, they, they wrote down, they wanted to make Gideon king. Gideon said, there's no king. I won't be your king. You're only going to have one king. That's the Lord. And then as Samuel would come, they would reject Samuel and make us a king. And then they would declare the statement. God said, listen, Samuel, give him a king because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And as they would go through the kings, we noted how there were only three kings over the entire nation of Israel. Solomon, David, and Saul. Those were the only ones. The rest were over divided kingdoms. And the fourth and final, the balanced truth, the king who will reign forever and ever and ever would be what? David's son. Absolutely amazing. And we were looking at that. We looked at how there Jeremiah said there was a, a, a curse upon the bloodline of Kaniah, the, the, the true rightful heirs of the kingdom. Kaniah 
because of his sin, God says that there shall not be a descendant of yours to sit on the throne. Your bloodline is cursed. You are going to be childless. You can't have one of your child's children sitting on the throne from generation to generation. Now, what do we do? And all he knew was what? There was a blood curse. Nothing more, nothing less, but he wrote it down. And then Matthew would come on the scene, and Matthew would show the genealogy of Jesus Christ from, from David through Solomon all the way to Joseph. And there's an amazing thing that we begin to see that Matthew shows a legal genealogy. And you come to Luke's gospel, and he shows a genealogy, but it's not the same genealogy. He takes it from David, but from David it's Nathan, not Solomon. From Nathan, it's Heli, which is Mary's father. And then from Heli, he then has what? He has a son-in-law, Joseph. Now, why do all of these people write certain things? Why? Because Jesus, through Mary, was a true descendant of Jesus Christ. But as Joseph adopts him, he now is able to be the legal king of Israel as Joseph's firstborn, but yet not be under the blood curse. See, none of these guys knew the whole picture. All they knew is tidbits, and this is here what John is saying. We're seeing a bigger picture. And understand that there are going to be times where God is not going to show you and me the big picture. It's almost as if God would warn us to say, listen, you see through a glass darkly, but in time you're going to know more, but not now. That was the prophets. Well, they only see enough of what God wanted, but guess what? Although they only saw a little piece, you know what they did? They were obedient to declare it. They were obedient to believe it. And I think that's what we have to be. We not, may not always see the big picture, but when we see what God reveals to us, walk in obedience. Do the things that he calls you to do. And I, I love it how Peter says, listen, we have this word, this word of prophecy. And these guys, they didn't always know the big picture, but what they did know, they were faithful to declare it so that we could have this bigger picture. And then we see that after that understanding, after that he is now dead, now comes verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took the body of Jesus. We look to this passage here in John's gospel, and he says he was this disciple, but he was secret. But for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the, the, the body of Jesus. When it comes to this secret disciple, I want to share with you just, just one passage of <coughs> the gospel of Mark. And, and it makes this statement in Mark 15, Verse 43, Joseph Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. There's a passage here in Mark 15, 43, where it says he was coming and taking courage. 
He was not thrilled about what he needed to do. He was not overly like, yeah, let's just, just go and take this on. There was terror in him. There was fear in him. But yet, amazingly, as the rest of the disciples were there locked up in the upper room, as they were locking themselves in for fear of the Jews, he here, Joseph had a fear. He wasn't a public disciple. He was a secret disciple. But guess what? He was there for such a time as this. And there are going to be times where men will fail and God will use you. Everyone else around you is going to fail, but God is going to use you. And what does that mean? Does that mean that you are better than anyone else? I don't know that it is because he was a secret disciple until this point. But yet he was what? He was obedient. When it came time that God called, called him to do so. Now, why is Joseph being obedient and you don't really need the other disciples to be obedient? Well, Joseph is a wealthy man and Joseph just so happens to have a tomb that is there in a garden not far from where Jesus was crucified. And so Joseph now being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of the fear. We recognize that he does this. He goes to Pilate. He asked that he might take the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, verse 39, who was, who at first came to Jesus by night, John chapter 3, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. So he comes bringing spices. There's something that I want to share with you when it comes to what's happening here. There is a prophetic word in the book of Isaiah chapter 53. And of course, you know I 50, Isaiah 53 is a psalm of the cross or, or a passage of the cross. And so with that, we do take heed to it. But what Isaiah 53 in verse 9 declares is this. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. When it talks about this, they made his grave with the wicked. There's two types of understanding of what this passage declares. One, that his death was with the thief. We understand that. The other is this. Whether you recognize it or not, that when thieves would die on the cross, when people was crucified, were, were crucified on the cross, what would they do with them? They would bury them. They would bury them in paupers' graves. And so what the religious rulers were thinking was this, that when Jesus was taken down from the cross, that he would be buried with the other two thieves. That's where we go. They're all, they're all bad. Romans killed them. They will then be buried. And they would be, as it would say, they would make his grave with the wicked. And they did make his grave with the wicked. But he didn't go to that grave. They made his grave with the wicked. They were anticipating burying him with the thieves. But, and I love this, but God says, oh no, we're going to elevate you. You're not going to be down here in your death. You're going to be elevated in your death. 
And so amazingly, although they would make his grave with the wicked, Jesus wouldn't need that grave. And so keep in mind that as he does, in the same way as Jesus there in his birth, whether you recognize it or not, that there at his birth, there is a passage in Luke chapter 2. I want to simply read it to you, verse 7. And it says, she, that is Mary, brought first her firstborn son, that would be Jesus, wrapped him in swallowing clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We think of a manger and maybe you've seen uh, a wooden shelter. You know, it's just, it's like a little barn. It has, you know, three sides that are open and the, the middle so you can see baby Jesus and all the donkeys. That's what it shows underneath the trees. But that's not what a manger was in that time. What a manger was, was a hewn out cave. It was simply a cave. And amazingly, the Jesus used a cave temporarily at his birth. And amazingly, he uses a cave when he comes into the world. And then he uses this cave, this tomb, when he goes out of the world. But he only uses it temporarily. He never stays in him permanent. He was there when he was born. He was there for a few days after he died. But it was only a temporary thing. And, and I think it's important to, to recognize that as he had a cave temporarily in his birth, he has this cave temporarily there in his death, that in, in leaving this world, he would not use the grave that was given to him by the religious leaders or by the Rome, but he would not get this grave to those who hated him. He would get a grave by someone who loved him. And this is important because what happens is this. Jesus says, hey, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there's many mansions. You are not going to have a dwelling place by those who hate you. You are going to have a dwelling place by him who loves you with such a love that no one can comprehend it. That's what's going to be your dwelling place. And I love it how Jesus, we recognize it here. They came and he didn't allow his grave to be with the wicked, with those that hated him. But we recognize that you're going to allow those that love you. They're not always the greatest. They were secret disciples, both Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And what Nicodemus does is he brings these myrrhs and aloes, about 100 pounds, to be there with Jesus. And so you think about this, and you understand that where the wise men there in Matthew chapter 2.11, they brought these golds of what? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. We see the, the, the gold provision for a king. He was going to need it because eventually they'd have to go down to Egypt. They'd have to get out of town. So you're going to need something to get out of town. So here you go. You already have the provisions. You have the gold. You have the frankincense, the anointing for his ministry, the myrrh, the anointing for his death. And so we see here that this is what Nicodemus does. He brings in the myrrh, the aloes. And in verse 40, it says, then they took the body. Joseph and Nicodemus worked together. 
the two together. And, and one goes to, to Pilate, one gets the body, one provides the tomb, one provides the aloes and the myrrh, and together they work. They took the body of Jesus and they bound it in strips of linen, with linen, with spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And now the place where he was crucified, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Do you understand, again, you have this preparation day. It's the day that is before the high Sabbath of the feast of unleavened bread. And, and I love the, the fact that what we see here in verse 41, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, there was a place for Jesus. I love the fact that in his death, he was there in a garden. And his act in that garden was different than the first Adam and his act in the first garden. See, the first Adam did what? Well, his act was of sin, but his act was what? God says, in the day that you do this, in the day that you sin, you shall die. His act of death in the first garden brought death to all men. Amazingly, Jesus' act, his act of death in, in this garden gives life to all men. So that all men, God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So all have the opportunity to come. Jesus gives life to all. Not all will accept it. Some will reject it. But I love the fact that here it talks about that there is a garden. In the same way as you look to this radical truth of Adam, his works there in the garden where God puts him to sleep, opens up his side, and out of the side he brings a life source, and the life source brings a bride for Adam. But in the garden, he dies, and that death is spread to all men. Jesus comes, and he's on the cross. His side, he goes to sleep. His side is opened up. When he wakes up, he has his church. He has his bride. But there in this garden, he also dies. He also plants the seed of his body, his death in this garden, but his death brings life. And I just find it absolutely amazing. So there they laid Jesus. There he was. And I love the fact that it says one thing that is so necessary to, for us to know and to believe. Jesus died. He died. There's no doubting that he died. He declared it's finished. He breathed his last father into your hand. I commit my spirit. He breathed his laugh. The centurion saw his death. They go, oh my goodness, he is dead. Surely this was a righteous man. The other ones who were breaking the legs went and saw Jesus. Said, the guy's dead. We don't need to break his legs. But let's pierce him for no other reason than what? Because I want to fulfill scripture. Not that he knew it, but that God knew that he would fulfill scripture. That he could be the second Adam. He could be the last Adam. He could be the Adam that when, when the life comes out of his side, after he's asleep, that life would come, a bride would come. 
And now he goes to the garden. And so amazingly, I just think that this death of Jesus is so much more. This passage in John is so much more than simply just reading a couple of verses. Because when you look at the last Adam and the first Adam, you begin to see the radical difference. So many things are the same, but one is temporary, one is eternal. And it's because of our Jesus that we have what? We are now his bride. We are now his church. And we now have this promise of eternity with him that we, no matter what, will have a place prepared for us. And not, not an earthly Joseph of Arimathea preparation, but Jesus himself preparing what? A heavenly home, an eternal place for us to dwell. May we rest in that and worship in it and be awe of just who Jesus is and what he's done. Amen? Oh, Father, we are so grateful for this, that in your death you bring life. And it is so evident that there can be no denying that you were dead. You declared it. You breathed your last. The centurion knew it. These, these soldiers, they recognize it. Your side was pierced. Blood and water gushed out. Your heart was pierced. Joseph. Nicodemus wrapped you and buried you. They laid your body there in a tomb because you were dead. The enemy would see it as a victory. We know it as our victory because your death was in our place. You suffered so that we would not have to. You were separated so that we would not have to. And in your death, you would become as we'll see next week, you'll become the first fruits of those who would rise from the dead. You would become that which all men would follow. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you for the radical understanding of just the truth of this passage. Continue to knit our hearts to know that we who were once dead in our trespasses and said we have been made alive You've given us life because of your death. We're now your bride. It was through your blood that you've purchased us and made us. We are your church. Oh, let us come alongside you, love on you, honor you, glorify you. Do the work in us. Fill us with your spirit that we can understand what you desire from our lives in this life that you've given us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.